There are some things that I think about as a Christian when I read the Bible that seem so far above and beyond that it's almost like it's unspeakable. When I, when I try to imagine what the Bible gives us and paints for us, and I have to tell you, chapter 4 and chapter 5 of the book of Revelation are kind of in that category. When I read these, these two chapters, and really a lot of the book of Revelation, but especially for me, chapters 4 and 5 and then the last two chapters of Revelation, it just describes and speaks of things that almost seem like, well, I shouldn't even be, I shouldn't even be messing with this. It is just so far interesting and neat and beyond and higher and mysterious with all the unknowns about it there are some things that we know and we see in these chapters that to me are just so precious and worthy of of our thought but yet they seem so high and and above and I have to say this picture of the throne room of heaven is like that I mean we all speculate what heaven's like and, you know, is it at all like what we, we think it could be? Who knows? But this picture in chapter 4 and chapter 5 of heaven is just, to me, so far out there beautiful and raising all kinds of thoughts of beings and, and what eternity's like and, and what it will be like when we get to heaven. It's just, it's just incredible. Revelation chapter 4 and 5, if I kind of condense it down to two, two things that, that I think that these two chapters say to me is number one, chapters 4 and 5 give us an inkling of the dark scenes ahead for the end times of humanity. They just begin to give us a picture of the incredible nature of God and creativity of God, and that God is working in human history. And it's coming to a conclusion. Humanity, as we know it, and time as we know it, is coming to a conclusion. It's coming to an end. Everything we, well, I don't know about everything, but probably about everything we understand and we think about God and about the future and everything that's out there, um, it's coming to an end. And it will be different. It will be different better. It won't be different loss. It will be somehow different better. And again, that, that blows my mind too. How can, I mean, how can you beat six grandkids? You know? There's a lot of things in life that we love and we cherish. Things we do, relationships, hobbies, interests. Things that give life meaning and wonder. And God wants this life to be full of that. I mean, He came that we would have life and have it to the full. So it's not like God wants us to just kind of bide our time until we die and then we get to go to heaven. That's not it at all. God wants us to make the very most of what we have here. Because the creation is unique. Life is unique. Life is precious. And God gives us that. But He also gives us this little bit of eternity too that we get these glimpses of. I think of Revelation 4 and 5 of reminding us, describing for us, that there are dark scenes ahead for humanity for the end of time. And the second is that God has a plan for all of eternity. He has a plan, and 
we are marching toward that victorious plan of God. It may seem some days that we don't live in, in anywhere close to the victory of God over sin and death and hell. But the reality is, Revelation 4 and 5 reminds us that we are marching toward that. We are getting closer. I don't know where and exactly how close, but we're getting closer and it could be any time. There's nothing that needs to happen before the events in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 begin to be played out in human history. There's nothing that God has promised needs to take place before this happens. Chapters 4 and 5, in fact, there's a... There's an uncertainty to when chapters 4 and 5 take place. There are even commentators that believe that it's already taken place. And the stage is set and ready for chapter 6 when the seal is opened of the scroll. I I don't know. I mean, there's such a variety of how people view chapter 4 and 5 and everything in the book of Revelation. And I've said before, there's so many things that we could, you know, we we wonder about, we, we read about, we might have particular authors or people that we think maybe has a good explanation. They might be right. They may not be. But the truth is, there's so much in chapters 4 and 5 and and the book of Revelation that is a mystery to us. And we have a little bits and pieces of it. But we do know that time is marching to God's conclusion for all of eternity. And that is what God wants us to get. I believe one of the things God wants us to get out of the book of Revelation is God is in charge and God is faithful and God is all-powerful and God is bringing the history of humanity to a close for something much better. Chapter 4, we looked at last week, describes John's view of the throne room of heaven. Somehow that God had invited John to a view and a perspective of the end times. That was our subject last week. Well, today we move to chapter 5, and and I'll just say in three words of chapter 5, the preciousness, even of the words and the, the concepts they convey. Number one is the importance and meaning of a scroll. The second is the importance and meaning of the lion of the tribe of Judah. And the third one is the lamb of God. And so, together, these chapters point us toward these things. John the Revelator has been invited to the doorway of heaven's throne. Last week, we talked about that invitation that God gave to John. Somehow, on the island of Patmos, through some type of vision, again, exactly how that happened. Different people have different ideas, but it was clearly an invitation to come for John to step into something incredibly different. To step into something that no man had ever been given the opportunity to see before except you might could say Daniel had part of that uh, when God gave him the visions that he did. But in the book of Revelation we have this picture of God specifically saying to this man this last living apostle, the last living one who was an eyewitness of Jesus and, and was called by Jesus to be his, his eyewitness to the world. At an old age, people think probably at least 80 or 90, could have been in his 90s. It had to have been something like that, considering that he walked with Jesus and was his disciple, although he could have been a much younger man than Jesus at the time. But the last living one that, that we know of, and, and here on the island of Patmos, God sends the angel to John, and in this part of the the story in the passage, 
The angel says, John, here's the open door. And up before John opens up this door, somehow this window of something beyond, different, unique, and then the word come. The angel says to John, come, come and see, come and hear what God says to you and to the churches. He says it like this, after this I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And then all that John saw there, I don't know if he wrote down everything he saw or just we have a little bit of it. But can you imagine as John approached that door and he began to see inside the door and the incredible things that were there in the throne room of of heaven. And and later on, I, I suppose, then he begins to write it down and he writes down the rest of Revelations chapter 6 through the end of the book. Well, as he enters through the door, first I want us to think about who it was that he saw, who was there, who was it that John beheld when he stepped over that threshold of the door, well, the first thing we saw last week, he saw incredible magnificence because he saw the one who sat on the throne. Certainly, we think that's God the Father, the one who sat on the throne. For John, the first thing he saw when he peered into heaven was a likeness of some form of God. He was beautiful and He was radiant. And uh, it was even the description that we hear is kind of takes your breath away. Jasper, this this presence that God allowed for John. Again, whether in a vision or the reality of that point, uh, I'm not sure. But he was the one who sits on the throne. And it wasn't no small chair. John understood what the throne meant. It meant eternity, it meant omniscience, it meant omnipotence, it meant power, presence, knowledge, vision, control, uh, oneness, unity, purpose, meaning. I'm thinking of all the things that are wrapped up in the one who sits on the throne. Then he sees 24 elders representing probably God's people across the earth. Every generation. Also, we talked last week about 10,000 times 10,000 angels right there at the throne of God. That's a million angels right there. Think of all the angels that exist. What would seem like maybe an infinite number in all of eternity. Or seemingly infinite. The four living creatures. Their uniqueness. and What we read last week about them. And how they're a part of heaven. They're a part of God's creation and God's eternal existence. Complex, mysterious, but present there. John saw that. And then John is going to see the Lamb. Somehow the vision of the Lamb, the idea of the Lamb, fully represented in the Christ and Jesus there before John at the throne as he looks into heaven. Just imagine all those beings 
And John, I just can't, can't imagine him taking a big breath or a big gulp as he steps into the doorway and takes that in. Oh, the complexity, the beauty, the wonder. And there's John the witness. He really was out of place compared to the others. But he became the eyewitness in the same way that Jesus wanted his apostles to be his eyewitnesses of his resurrection. And they were in Acts. We've been studying Acts on Wednesday nights and it keeps talking about the eyewitnesses. We were there. We were with them. We saw them. We, we beheld the resurrection. And here again, God calls upon John one more time to be the eyewitness. He says, John, I'm going to give you a vision nobody's ever seen. But I want you to write that down and I want you to give that to all of my disciples, all of my apostles. What John sees is amazing, amazing, incredible beings in incredible worship. Uh, read with me now, chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. Listen, we read this last week. We're going to read it again today. Listen to this incredible doorway view that John has looking into the throne of heaven. Chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on the throne. I'm sorry, writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals, and a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God every person from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, ten thousands times ten thousands. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and on the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. And there verse 1 says, go on to two more slides, would you please? Verse 1 says that there in the right hand of him who sits on the throne is a scroll. So there is this amazing being on the throne of heaven and he's sitting and he's holding something. He's holding a precious scroll of great value and significance. 
It's hard for me to wrap my mind around how important this scroll is and exactly what it is. But we know it's something that is a part of all of God's plan. This scroll is, represents the very plan of God. The meaning of the scroll, I believe, is paramount to the details of the rest of the book of Revelation. Somehow in this scroll is contained the mind and the heart of God for all of eternity. Somehow in this scroll is a sacred something, maybe a plan, maybe a telling. Again, different commentators have a different way to think about it or describe it. But whatever it is, it's God's sacred, ultimate hand in human history. It is coming to this place where the purposes and the plan of God for all of eternity is about to be announced and to be poured out. It certainly is mysterious, the scroll. But I want us, as we think of chapter 5, to realize how important the scroll is. How important the content and the fullness of the words of the scroll are. We get bits and pieces beginning in chapter 6 of what's in the scroll. It's a part of the John's vision as he looks into heaven and into the future. It's a scroll, you might say, of the throne room of heaven, but it's also a scroll of the ending of time. What we do see in the scroll, and we know exactly in the scroll, is there are seven seals on it. Each of these seals signify events that will take place beginning in chapter 6. They cover roughly seven periods of time of events that take place as the end of time is emerging and unfolding. The coming together of time and eternity are described in these seven seals. They don't seem to cover all the details of the rest of the book of Revelation, but they cover the beginning part. These are God's final acts of human history. These are seven things that will happen as God rolls human history to its end. It's God's works. It's God's choosing. It's God's planning. God's final acts of human history. It will bring together this scroll will with the information, the pieces of God's salvation and restoration for man. This scroll not only describes the events, but it describes a God who has a purpose. And the purpose is to complete the restoration of the relationship between God and man. To bring together what some writers have said is God's finest masterpiece of creation. That is man made in his own image. Revelation chapter 5 describes this scroll that somehow is bringing together, consummating the wonder of salvation. The power of an incredibly 
all-powerful God to restore man, who He made in His image, but He made with a will that He could choose His own. And in, in doing so, man walked away from God, but yet God never quit or gave up, but He put into motion this incredible plan of salvation all the way back. Somehow in the beginning of eternity, He knew that His Son Jesus would be the Lamb. From the foundation of the world, the Scripture says, somehow God knew that. And now he is pouring out the last of that plan in this book of Revelation and in this incredible scroll. It will describe the judgments of God and the rewards of God. It's God's final judgments and rewards for his people, which are beautiful. Not to be so scary as we might sometimes be when we Maybe read the book of Revelation out of its context. We understand that God is speaking to the just and the unjust. He's speaking to those who have bowed their heart and their knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and those that have not. He's speaking to those that are His children and those that are not. And so for those that are God's people, these final judgments, these final acts described beginning with the unveiling of the scroll should, should be a a marvel to us and a wonder of the future. We also know that the scroll was leading to a new heaven and a new earth. The finalization of God's plan for, for a new existence. That will be different than human history. There probably will be many similarities, but there are also going to be incredible differences in eternity for humanity and who we are and what we look like and what we want to do and what our personalities are and our minds, our thoughts, our will, all that, I'm sure, or I'm pretty sure that there's going to be a lot of similarities to what we think now, but there's also going to be an incredible sphere of something that we can't even begin to imagine. As I've quoted so many times, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, not even John. No mind has conceived what God has prepared for those that love Him. The incredible look we have in Revelation chapter 5 is just a little tiny window. I mean, it's a great window. It's an incredible window, but it's still a small window. And it was given to John, and John's trying to give it to us, and we're trying to interpret it 2,000 years later and understand what it says. We're told here that the scroll is full, written on both sides. That was unique. That was different. That wasn't often the case. In fact, that's a, more of a rarity in ancient scrolls that they'd be written on both sides. There were certain ones that were, but it indicates that what that indicates to me is this isn't just six or seven, seven statements about seven, seven events that are going to take place and that's it. It is a full scroll. There's a lot of detail there that John doesn't give us and describe for us, but there's a lot there that is. In other words, what I get from that is God's plan is complete. It is not completely known to me though, but it is complete and incredible. And the fact that we might sometimes take the book of Revelation and we think, boy, I don't understand how this fits to that and where's that from and what time period is this? You know, God was pleased not to give us all the details yet. For whatever reason, the mind of God did not want us to have every detail that's in the, seven, uh, in the scrolls. It was full, cover to cover, front to back, a completeness, a wholeness. The question that we understand from this great chapter is, the question of who can open the scroll? Who can unleash the times of the end? Who 
is able to bring about God's purposes and God's mission? Who is able to complete the plan of God? Who is able to take human history up to this point and see it to the end? Is there anyone that can do that? Or is God stuck in humanity's time? Is God somehow wrapped up so much in trying to reconcile himself to man that he really never would be able to bring it to conclusion? Did God get get in too far over his head? Who is able to open the scroll? Who is able to see the end of time? Who is able to make final sense out of the humanity mess? Who is able to understand the incredible destructiveness of sin and that it could be overcome? Who's able to take the sin of the 21st century, 2021? Who's able to make sense of what's going on in our world today? Who's able to see it in some kind of a perspective that that says there's a way to come through it? What about the mess in our world today? People are, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to think. I've said that too, of course. We all have. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know what's going to happen in 2022. Is it going to be even worse in 2020 and 2021 in some ways? Are we going to have any more answers than we have last month? Are we going to have any more answers next month? There's something about this question that really grips my heart. Who is worthy? Who is able to make a future out of what has happened in our past? Who is able to take the events all the way up to Revelation chapter 4 and make sense of them for all of eternity? Who is worthy? There's no one out there. Who can unleash the story? Who can tell it? Who has the right to? Who has the authority to? Who has the experience enough to understand it and bring about a final plan? And I saw verse 2 says, A mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Somehow, up until this moment of time in, in man's history, there's There's been an uncertainty about the future. I mean, God has seemingly just continued to plug along in His plan. Now again, this is what John sees. He sees the conflict. He sees the, uh, the irreconcilable point of what has happened about humanity and the horribleness of turning away from God and sin and He gets there and he looks there and he sees the scroll and he he knows what it represents. And he hears this mighty angel say, well, who's worthy to unloose the scroll? Who is worthy? And, And John comes to this realization, this deep, painful realization that there's no one who can bring to a conclusion what's happened with humanity. He says, and there's three here, and it's interesting to me, no one in heaven or on earth 
or under the earth. Go on to that next slide if you would, please. There is no one in heaven. Wow. Thinking, is that literal? Or that is the sense that John gets or the angel gets? I mean, the angel knows all those millions of angels and the four living creatures and the 24 elders. No one. Somehow, the angel is confused, seems like. The angel says, oh, there's, there's nobody. There's nobody in heaven. Who is that? What is that? Or under the or on the earth. That one seems a little more clear to me. There's no kings. There's no nations. There's no religions. There's no leaders. There's no antichrist. There is no one who can solve the problem of sin and the brokenness with God. And no one under the earth. I think that means, and again, these are mysterious things and others have a lot of different thoughts about it, but I think it's everybody that's already died. Might be the demons. Might be all the spiritual uh, beings connected to death and Hades. The word here is Hades, which means the realm of the dead. Nobody who's ever lived and died has solved the problem. There has been no answer to the brokenness of what sin does to the relationship with God. There has been no person successful enough, living or dead, who can live up to the idea of a relationship with a holy God. Even the best person that's ever lived, Abraham, Mother Teresa, Daniel, one of you, no, no one can live up and solve the problem of sin. Not one being in heaven or on earth or under the earth. John has that sense of that. And what does he do? He weeps. And he weeps. Whatever that meant, as John responds, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Wow. I know as I'm trying to describe this, I, I'm, for me at least, I'm hoping I hit a, you know, something of the, the tip of the iceberg of the brokenness of John here. John has seen it all here. He's been with Jesus. He saw the cross. He saw the resurrection. He, he knows that sin, the brokenness is, is hopeless. And then we come to verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. For some reason, God keeps John in this vision a little bit in the dark. 
The answer was there all along. But in verse 5, we hear it. Maybe because that helps us to really come to terms with verse 4 and why John was weeping. Why is it? He was weeping and he was weeping. John could sense the importance of the question the angel asked. John understood what was at stake here. The magnitude of the whole climax of humanity and eternity. God's plan had been initiated. It had been fought. It had been thwarted, it seems at times. It had been bottled up and there had been so much loss. There was this gulf between God and man that sin destroyed. John understands that. Now remember, this isn't 2,000 years later. This is soon after Jesus went to heaven, 50, 60 years from there. John, I believe, is getting a picture and a sense of the timing of God. How man made in His image, in His free will and His sin, is brought back to God. And then, this, this elder, I call him, I don't know which elder he was, but uh, he was the chosen one, I guess you might say. One of the 24 elders. He says, oh, do not weep. I got news for you. Oh, John, 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 John. You just think that there is no possibility here. It's, it's over, it's done. He says, John, don't weep. See, look, behold. See with your eyes the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he speaks to John of Christ at the center of the throne with God the Father. This is the only time in the book of Revelation that Jesus is described as the lion. Every other time, and I think this is interesting, every other time Jesus is described, he's described as the lamb. But here, in the first look of John, he's seen as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Look, you can see the lion. You can see the power. You can see the eternality. You can see the, the omniscience. You can see the presence. You can see the plan. You can see the overcoming strength of Christ. Yes, He overcame sin and death and hell. Oh, He is worthy to see to the end the mighty plan of God. Look and see the lion of the tribe of Judah. The lion in its fullness of the power of God to make right what sin had destroyed to defeat the plan of Satan. And so, the elder first says, see the lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then verse 6 says, then I saw a lamb. First he saw the lion. Then he saw the lamb. Three beings that John brings together in this vision. The first is the lion and the strength and the salvation of God. And the second is the sacrifice of Jesus, the Son that made it possible. He sees this lamb that 
that looking as if verse 8 says, 6 says, it had been slain. Somehow John, as he sees into the throne and he sees the lion and he sees this lamb with seven horns and seven eyes and he sees the blood, he sees this. I don't know what he sees, it's just speculation. But he sees the lamb in the fullness of the sacrifice. He sees something spiritual here that we imagine what it's like physical. Standing at the center of the throne as if it had been slain. So you have this incredible vision of John of God the Father, this, this majestic being on the throne, and then you have the Lamb. Or you have the Lion, and then you have the Lamb. Unblemished. Holy. Having given its life. Having paid the penalty for sin for all of the past. Another word to put out there is is John sees the sin bearer. What John is seeing is God's answer to sin. It's an incredible look through the door. He sees the sacrifice of the Lamb. He sees how that Lamb is the one that has overcome what no one else on heaven or on earth or under the earth can see. Strong, powerful, Conquering sin, conquering death. He is the Christ. He is the Lamb. The only one who could take away the sin of the world. The only one who can open the scroll. The only one that can unleash God's plan for the end of time. That plan for full reconciliation. That final act that we will see played out in these late chapters of Revelation, that will bring together God and man for eternity. These things are deep. These things are mysterious. These things are beautiful. Just imagine the beauty of what John is saying. I mean, he sees this throne in this jasper and gold, and he sees this sea of glass. He hears the voice of thunder. And then... Even more significant, I think, is John beholding the beauty of the soul and the restoration of God the Father with humanity. And it's interesting that the the elder is the one that announced that. That's us. The 24 elders. Uh, Do I need to do something different? Maybe not. To me, the contrast between the beauty of what John saw and the depth, the spiritual depth of what he understood about the sacrifice of Jesus is both beautiful. Verse 6 at the end says it like this. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of Him who sat on the throne. Christ. So he takes that scroll from God the Father. And when he does, an incredible thing happens. The worship begins again. It's like the handing off of the scroll is the initiation of this second or third or fourth, whatever you want to call it after chapter four, picture of worship. And two things happen here. One is that we're told of is that all the 24 elders and the four beasts have harps. I think that signifies worship. 
I think it signifies all the things that we've been reading that they're saying and singing, whatever they're doing. Somehow, the glory of the Lamb and the incredible work that the Lamb did now is being worshipped in heaven. And it's worship. And then the second thing uh, is the bowls of the incense, which is incredible, beautiful. Just think about that, the bowls of the incense, which is the prayers of the people. I'm kind of thinking to end today on this thought. Can you imagine all the prayers that are in those golden bowls that John sees there? Can you imagine what it's like for those beings to carry or hold those bowls of your prayers and my prayers? Somehow represented in these bowls, I think, are every prayer that God's people has prayed for 2,000, 4,000 years. Every prayer that's come from the heart of a believer, from the heart of someone who's seeking God is somehow in these bowls. And that's what, that's what these elders are holding. But it's revealed that Jesus is worthy to open the scrolls. Think about that. What does it mean that your prayers are a part of that? That seems to say to me that prayer has an incredible place in the eternal plan of God that I might not think about otherwise. The golden bowls full of the prayers of God's people Next time you wonder, does God hear my prayer? Remember this picture in Revelation chapter 5 where God receives the offering, the worship. Jesus, as the elders and the 24, or the 24 elders and the, uh, the creatures are kneeling down, they're playing their harps and they're presenting their bowls of the prayers of God's people. Imagine what that scene is. Imagine what that prayer means. Imagine how important you are to God that He's taken every one of your prayers. Don't ever think that God doesn't hear your prayer. This, this Scripture just blows me away with the incredible idea of how God knows me and my heart and my life. In this little way that we see here, kind of on a side note in chapter 5, God hears your prayers. Thank you for being with us today as we have marched through chapter 5. Would you stand with me? Chapter 6 begins with the opening of the first seal. I kind of think that chapter 6 is, the, is a dividing point in the book of Revelation. Up till now, it's kind of been about, going to be about the future, but chapter 6 is the beginning. And I'm looking forward to opening that chapter and beginning to look there next week, Lord willing. Thank you for being here. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the prayers of God's people. Somehow, they're recorded and they impact and affect the Lamb and the opening of the scrolls. I thank you for that. I pray you would help us to understand what you say to us in these verses and in this uh, vision of John, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you.